Welcome back. We hope you've been behaving yourself. This is Mary Lewis. And this is Jackie Noto. Welcome to Behave Yourself, a podcast on BA without the BS. Mary, what is your candy of the week from Melted Gummies to Kit Kats? How has it been going for you? My candy of the week is a Skittle. I love Skittles, but I do get satiated over time. Like it's not the best thing in the world as far as candy goes, but it's pretty good. So we've just been living in peaks and valleys, which is life. Um, I planned a trip to take a break, to take a mini vacation And it turned out to be a little bit of a stressy, messy situation, but I, I powered through and we're making it work. So it kind of feels like the universe is telling me not to take this vacation, but I think that's just me trying to come up with excuses because it has been hard to like continually advocate for myself. Like this matters. Like this is actually what I want to do. This is valuable to me. It's worth putting in the effort now to be able to go on this mini vacation. It'll mean a lot to me nostalgically. So like, that's what I mean by the valleys, but the peaks have been great. So I would say having a Skittles week. I love that. I want to do a real quick pause here because I want you to share in our being authentic here in Mm. regards to your trip, something I want to give you kudos for and something you should give yourself kudos for is when things were getting a little wishy-washy. What did you do? You were flexible with yourself. You knew you could shift when this break was going to be. So you maintained flexibility and allowed for that switch to happen without being too mean to yourself about it. Yeah. And I requested the refund. I was just going to let it sit. And I was like, "Mm, that's actually way too much money. And you got to do it, Mary Lewis. So we, we did it. Thank you for that. Thank you for that affirmation. How, what candy are you personifying this week Jackie how is your week going let us know my candy this week would be sour patch kids now I do enjoy sour patch kids uh we know we've talked about the blue ones before they're the best but specifically the reason I chose sour patch kids as my identifier are because of those commercials that were out in like the late 90s early 2000s where it's like first they're sour then they're sweet (laughs) That's how I've been doing since we last chatted. So uh, Mary and I record on Wednesdays. And on Thursday, my dog had a pretty severe allergic reaction. He broke out in hives all over his body. We went to the vet ER. He's totally fine now. You you wouldn't know anything happened. He's currently taking a nap on the couch. We are chilling. (laughs) But Thursday, Friday, and Saturday was pretty intense for us in our home. So that's my sour. And now my dog's feeling better. That's beautiful. I'm catching up on work. That's beautiful. My dad's going to come see me this weekend. That's beautiful. So I'm having a sour patch week because it's sour, then sweet. That's amazing. And kudos to you because I know that you fully executed that very stressful time for multiple days and you acknowledged that 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 was challenging and you're probably going to need emotional time to recover from that. And so I think it's really important that you are, you know, viewing it that way and not just putting pressure on yourself to keep powering through because like that was a big deal and that was really scary. So I want to give you kudos for that too. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm a doer in the time, in the moment, not a feeler. So you're spot on that. Like when it was happening, I'm prioritizing fixing my baby. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, 
Oh my gosh, that was a lot last week, huh? Oh, wow. I should probably catch up on sleep. I wasn't doing that, huh? So it's like feeling it. Yesterday, I was like, do I need to cry? Maybe. We'll see. But I think part of that too is just, I have sleep deprivation. I was up till 8 a.m. Thursday morning, 5 a.m. Friday morning, 4 a.m. Saturday morning. So, and I, I mean- think of us when we're like little kids we're all cranky when we don't have enough sleep so I think that's where part of those heightened emotions are coming from too but we're revamping the sleep schedule working on getting back to being asleep by midnight Uh, and last night I was asleep by like 2 a.m so not great but certainly better than five days ago when I was up till eight like that's quite a shift within a short period of time exactly as you would write when talking about data a increase in desired behavior compared to previous data points which is really all you can ask for Mm -hmm. so yeah we're in our sweet phase now heck do you have any recommendations this week mary i do i've recently been diving taylor swift deep into um harvard business review articles Mm. because it's low response effort i feel like people that are interested in obm or behavior analysis in general, are attracted to the types and topics that the Harvard Business Review um, articles puts out. And so I think it's a great recommendation. They talk a lot about productivity, and they just have very actionable steps, but also the articles are really short. The low response effort, though, that I discovered, which is making me read more articles, is that there's an app that you can download and it's free. So I can just open the app And it actually, I was reading an article and then I got distracted. And so I like exited out and it sent me an email because I put my email to log in and it sent me an email and was like, Hey, you weren't finished reading this article. And I was like, that's a little creepy, but also very helpful. Thank you so much. And so now I can go back and I've currently been down the rabbit hole of like time management, specifically time boxing, which I knew as time blocking. I think they're the same or very similar, but they reference it as time boxing and just how to be like more efficient in your time without like working yourself to death. It's kind of like my main interest. And that's what I would recommend. Very cool. I have a nerd question for you here. Mm-hmm. Does the app provide an option where it reads the articles to you? I don't know, but you know what does hmm. is Taylor and Francis. Have you noticed that when you open a research article with, because like since we're affiliated with the university, we get access through the Taylor and Francis, there's an audio button and you can press it and it reads the article to you. Did you know that? So I knew it on the desktop. Yeah, I've never tried it on my phone. And oh, I'm it trying... does. Yeah, it does oh, on the sick. phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to see. I think it'd be such a, once again, habit, habit stacking, stack. great use of my time. <laughs> like on a walk with my dog, if I'm going to be out for 40 minutes, I can yeah. listen to pages of an article that I yeah. have to read anyway. Exactly. Love that. What about you, Jackie? So my recommendation of the week is not something that I've personally done. Okay. But something that I've been seeing a lot on the Tiki Talkie, and it is a new hairbrush. Okay. Now, the reason I'm including this for my recommendation of the week is because what I've been seeing on the Tiki Talkie are parents of or guardians, caregivers of children with autism using this specific hairbrush oh. and that it has worked for them tremendously. It's called the unbrush, and apparently it's good about getting through tangles in the hair without pulling or causing pain. 
So I've been seeing a lot of videos online of parents who say that like, normally they have to chase their child around the house. Normally their child is crying. Normally like they'll hit or whine or scream when they brush hair and they try out the unbrush. And on some of the kids' faces, you can see the shock. Like they're tensed, ready to like feel the pain. And then you just kind of see them go like, oh, this doesn't hurt. Oh, I can sit here. And it's like children who have like 4A to 4C type of hair, it's still working for them. So um, this isn't something that I've tried, but just based off of some of the success stories I've seen on the internet, uh, it might be worth it if you have a autistic child to consider the unbrush. One of the mom's vocal behavior was, this didn't cost a lot of money and don't tell the company, but I would pay more for it because of how well it works for us. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So I wanted to plug that today, even though I haven't had experience with it, we are not partnered or sponsored by Unbrush at all. Right. But if it's a tool that can help families, I want to make sure that you hear about it from somewhere so that you can do some of your own research and figure out if this would be a beneficial purchase for your quality of life and for your child's quality of life. Thank you for sharing. What could Rex this week? Agreed. Agreed. I Let's... think we're going to be providing some more Rex as we get into the episode. What topic are we <laughs> spilling tea on today? I like how we provide separate Rex, but I feel like the whole podcast content, our goal is to provide Rex in the yeah. in the meat and potatoes um, or veggies These are potatoes. sides. These are your asparagus they, Rex. Yes. Whereas this is the meal. <laughs> What's our hey. meal today? Amen. Our meal today is we're going to be talking about increasing quality of life for employees. We're going to be talking about the difference between living life, contacting positive reinforcement as opposed to constantly escaping or avoiding tasks. We're going to touch a little bit on punishment, specifically in the workplace and some contingencies. And sometimes punishment's really effective, but it doesn't always lead to the best outcomes when we're talking about in a workplace setting. We're going to give some examples and we're just going to have some discussions. We have some fun stories and we hope this is beneficial to you and overall empowers you to advocate where you work or where you live to um, operate and live your life focused on moving towards and accessing positive reinforcement rather than avoiding or escaping or being punished um, just to get tasks done. Before we, I just want to say deep dive Taylor Swift in. Also, I would like to say, I'm sorry, this is an aside and unrelated, but I'm kind of thrown off. And if any Swifties are listening, I'd love some clarification. Amazon Prime has released three separate documentaries and they just popped up on my Amazon Prime and they're about Taylor Swift, but they're all just like PR video recordings and voiceovers and she's not actually in the videos. And I'm kind of confused as to what that is. So if somebody could clarify, I would really appreciate. Okay. Yes, we'll need our resident Swifties to hop on. Yes. Before we discuss what we want to talk about, which is basically how to not constantly be main, maintain your behavior by negative reinforcement and punishment is that when we talk about punishment procedures and reinforcement procedures, positive and negative reinforcement, we are not talking about how these contingencies are programmed in a clinical setting. No clinical talk here, not working with individuals with autism or developmental disabilities. We are strictly focusing on how these contingencies are applied in a workplace setting with individuals who are employees and more typically, neurotypical. 
Awesome. So we're going to open up here with a story. Now, originally, Mary and I both read about this in the burnout book by the Nagowski sisters. They included this story. So we thought it was beneficial and we wanted to talk about it because it relates to this sector today. So in 2001, Friedman and Forster, who are researchers, ran a study where they had college students solve a simple maze with a mouse in the middle. There were two different groups. One was focused on helping the mouse find its way out for a piece of cheese. The other was focused on helping the mouse escape the talons of an owl, ooh, but no cheese. So one group would be working towards something, the cheese, and one group is working to get away from something, the owl. Now, the study found that both of these groups completed the maze at about the same rate. However, when they're looking at who could complete the maze faster when there was only one version to complete, typically it's the group who's looking for the cheese, the group who is working towards something, not working to get away from something. Those who moved towards the cheese ended up finishing with a higher percentage rate. And when they did finish, most of the time, they did it faster than the group who was avoiding the owl. So here we're looking at working towards a reward versus escaping something, escaping a demand, escaping a threat. And Dr. Emily Nagowski actually has a quote that I'm going to read from her book here. It makes perfect sense when you think about it. If you're moving towards a specific desired goal, your attention and efforts are focused on that single outcome. But if you're removing away from a threat, it hardly matters where you end up as long as it's somewhere safe from the threat. So we, I want you to think about this cheese and owl example when we're thinking about the workplace. Now, unfortunately, tr most traditional workplaces operate in a system of negative reinforcement. You're continually evading the talons of the owl. You're doing just enough to not get in trouble. Yeah. Just enough to not get snatched up by that owl. Mm-hmm. Whereas what we're pitching here, what's beneficial is to have a workplace that's structured in positive reinforcement, working towards the cheese. Here, typically, you see that individuals will go above and beyond the expectations because they're hoping to contact that supplemental reinforcement. And what's really fascinating about this, and I didn't make the connection until you started talking about the story, is that this is the explanation for why job crafting is effective because job crafting is all about aligning your personal and professional values and looking at your job task and saying like, what do I actually like to do? What do I have to do? How can I advocate for myself? And the research shows that once you start job crafting, AKA prioritizing your day based on your preferences, but also the resources and what you have to do, you end up doing more tasks because you're like, oh, I was able to do this. Now I want to do this. Now I want to try this as opposed to operating and trying to just escape and avoid and trying to get a task done just so the task can be done. That's all you do. You don't do any other tasks. You're not seeking out any resources because you don't feel supported to and you don't feel like you have any autonomy to choose what you actually want to do at work and how it contributes to your values. So that is a really fascinating connection. And when we think about those behaviors at work, those results, those outcomes, think of it from an employer perspective. As an employer, would you rather have employees who do the bare minimum or employees who go above and beyond? I think most employers would state they want employees who go above and beyond. 
So as the employer, you need to be sure you're setting up the system to in reinforce that behavior. You're setting up the contingencies to allow individuals to go above and beyond. And for employers who, which I think in the helping profession, I really don't know if this is common outside of health and human services. It, it probably is. But I think the the mindset that as a leader, you want to do it perfectly. So when it comes to training or when it comes to delegating or when it comes to just setting clear job expectations, there's the mindset of, well, they can't do it as well as me. So I'm just going to do it for them in terms of taking that load off your plate and being an effective leader, but also getting more work done and having to do less. This is a really effective way to think about how to not only mentor your employees, but provide them with choice and autonomy so they actually like their job and they're getting more done. So it's a win-win, but it is really hard to think about, especially in the moment when you're like, they don't know how to do this task. I know how to do this task. It's a lot faster if I don't have to train them in the moment, but the delayed consequences are not great and not beneficial. As a quick aside here, if you'd like some unsolicited advice, which I guess is what our whole podcast is. We just retitle unsolicited advice. Yeah. Um, don't make the that, same mistakes we did. Don't reinvent the wheel. Learn from us. For real, for real. Something that I like to do when I create content for my students is when I'm trying to tell them about new terms, new concepts, philosophies, arguments, debates. I try to present that in a way that would have been beneficial for me. The tips and tricks that I came up with to teach myself this information as a student, to memorize, to remember, to apply it, mm -hmm. I try to embed those same tips and tricks, embed visuals, embed flowcharts, embed active student responding at different levels of the Bloom's taxonomy. So when you're training, you can once again increase that quality of life by viewing what would you like as an employee? If you mm -hmm. were your own employee, what would you want work to be? And go from that route. And also understanding that even if you've done the job before, if you're in a leadership position, you don't necessarily know what the individuals below you are doing and the contingencies that they're contacting on a daily basis, unless you have data or are observing that. Even if you've done the job before, that's, I'm not a leader, but that's just how I feel. That's my honest opinion. I want to make it clear why we're sharing this and why we think it's so important Mm -hmm. And I think one of them, other than to promote well-being and reduce burnout, obviously, but the thing Our about, <laughs> right, the thing about punishment in a, Jackie, I like the way you clarified how like the world views punishment versus like how behavior analysis, how behavior analysts view punishment. So I would love for you to explain that after I say what I'm about to say. Punishment works. We know punishment works. It can be implemented in the workplace and it can lead to employees doing desired behavior, but it could also leave, I want to use the word toxic, but I know that's a buzzword. So I'm going to say the word yucky. It leaves like yuckness behind. People become resentful. People can become angry. People can feel like they don't have autonomy. They're unheard. And then they're really only going to do the bare minimum and certainly not provide feedback or seek resources or do more tasks. And so in the end, you're just creating a functioning, yes, workplace, but not necessarily a workplace that's advocating for well-being. And it's certainly not going to grow and evolve effectively. And I'd argue here, we can generalize that code from the clinic to the workplace. In mm -hmm. the code, it says to use the 
least intrusive, most effective, least restrictive, et cetera. So in the workplace, I think a good way to take that code and to use it in a different sector here is starting with positive reinforcement first. If that's not working out, we can look at maybe negative reinforcement, maybe a form of punishment, but starting with positive reinforcement first, because just like we know punishment works, reinforcement works and positive reinforcement works well in the workplace. Mm -hmm. Now this point on punishment here, uh, the public sector definition of punishment and the definition of punishment and behavior analysis are different. Mm -hmm. So when you hear punishment in your average day to day, someone on the street says the word punishment, they're typically talking about, you know, some harm, whether it's through rejection, through lack of attention, through injury, physical or uh, emotional injury. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Punishment entails some form of harm in the public definition. In behavior analysis, all that punishment is, is there is a consequence, a stimulus following behavior. A consequence is just that. A consequence is a stimulus following behavior. That can be something that's good or something that's not good. Mm -hmm. So they can like it or they cannot like that stimulus. What punishment entails is following that stimulus it leads to a decrease in behavior. There it is. So punishment, let's say someone says or does something inappropriate. After they engage in that behavior, the consequence, which is a stimulus following behavior happens. Let's say I provide them with feedback. This feedback leads to a reduction of them engaging in that problematic behavior. That pairing of providing a stimulus following the behavior and that behavior decreasing is what punishment means in behavior analysis. So of course, right, punishment works in the workplace for behaviors we're looking to decrease. When we say punishment, we're not saying harm, neglect, uh, injury. We're saying decreasing behavior from an intervention. Exactly. And if you think about that with that Perfect explanation. Thank you, Jackie. If you're only focusing on decreasing behavior, first of all, that's not great. Second of all, that's not going to end well for you. And third of all, you're not providing any opportunity for employees or individuals to access positive reinforcement to increase desired behavior. So that's where that whole you get the results, but you don't necessarily benefit in the long term. I'd also like to make a point here that I think is interesting. When we're in the clinic, we're working with kids or older individuals, individuals who uh, have some form of diagnosis where we're working in a one-on-one -on -one setting. Whenever we're looking at decreasing a behavior or engaging in punishment of that behavior, something that's always talked about mm -hmm. is you have to have an appropriate alternative behavior. Mm-hmm. Funny enough, I don't see that too often in OBM. When we're nope. looking to punish a behavior we don't want, we don't often give it a functionally equivalent appropriate. Nope. And you might say, well, that's because it doesn't work. Okay, let me throw out an example here. Maybe, what's a name I can use? Susan. Susan. Maybe Susan engages in a lot of chit-chat around the office. Ooh. Maybe she walks from cubicle to cubicle, chit-chat, 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 chit-chat. And she's not beneficially using her time. You okay. provide her with the feedback that this chit chat, chit chat doesn't work. What would be a functionally appropriate behavior for Susan to engage in? Well, it sounds like Susan is maybe being 
uh, motivated or is maintained via attention. Mm -hmm. She's able to engage in chit chat, socially mediated attention. What if we provide Susan with an opportunity of job crafting to add to her job that she's in charge of office birthdays, that she's in charge of events, right? And this allows her to go chit chat with everyone, find out when their birthdays are, find out what we should be planning, organizing a secret present exchange during the holidays, whatever that might be. Here, Susan is still being able to engage in the chit-chat behavior, the social media attention that Susan wants. However, Susan is also benefiting the company by increasing the quality of life and showing the employees that we care about your birthday, about things that you like to celebrate, whether it's a religious event, a holiday. Uh, My mom's work actually even does some events looking at different ethnicities and cultures all things that are beneficial for improving our diversity, equity, and inclusion. So what if we loop Susan in to that work, that work that someone at our company is likely already working on who probably needs a little hand, and then instead of Susan spending four of her hours during the day chit-chatting to her coworkers, she still gets to have that maintained, but doing something that is appropriate in the workplace and beneficial for the workplace. Like we can still use DRAs in the workplace. We just don't often. That was a perfect description of job crafting. And it demonstrates so beautifully how really job crafting from a leadership perspective is listening to what your employees truly care about. Yes, Susan needs, myself included, needs to be reminded, we know you love to chit chat, but you need to prioritize these job roles first and then please engage in the chit chat in this functional based way. Chef's kiss. That was such a, the use delay. That's, that's job crafting. So why should we hit positive reinforcement before negative reinforcement before punishment? It's way more fun. It's more fun. Arguably more people, effective. It's effective. And we want people to enjoy where they work. Yeah. You know, of course, a job is a job, but we want people to feel happy, valued, safe, secure. We don't need people who are scared. Mm-hmm. What I always hate is when you hear that someone, uh, when their supervisor comes in, they get nervous. Yes. I hate that. When your supervisor comes in, that should be something of happiness, something of security, because you can trust them. They're always looking out for your best interests. So when people are scared, when the supervisor's around, clearly something is not working. Yes. And that reminds me, I have this working theory. I'm sure it's already established in the real world, but or like, like my time to- leap theory. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just stealing Jackie's theories. But recently, as somebody who really, really struggled to learn or to learn learning behaviors in school, like literally until I was 18, didn't even think I would get into undergrad, into college. I think there's a very real and not talked about set of contingencies that occur when people are scared. Their brain, my theory is, When people are scared, their brain turns off. They lose their brain cells. They're not able to think effectively and efficiently. And what may seem like very clear instructions or a very easy exam, they could fail. They could get every question wrong because they are so scared of getting it wrong or the consequences of what it would mean to get a bad grade that they are just unable to function. And we see this in safety research. I mean, the responses that people have is fight, flight, or freeze. 
And in the workplace, you really only have one of those three options. Your DF is one. Your option is freeze. And I'm sure it happens in the clinic. I know for me, I engage in freeze when it comes to tests. No matter what that test is, no matter how much I studied, how confident I am, I open up that test. I look at question one, blank slate. Nothing is there. I'm frozen. Yep. So I flip to the end of the exam, start at the back, work to the front. But even in something so inconsequential as the SD of a paper being put in front of me, that's enough to have that freeze response happen, Mm -hmm. let alone your boss coming in to directly observe you working. Mm -hmm. Freeze is going to happen. On the same note of safety, I've recently been reading recently published articles on behavior-based safety. To be honest, it didn't have a full scope of what's really going on over there, but they're doing some really cool stuff. And I was very impressed. The title of one of the most recent articles that I read, it's by Ludwig and Lasky from 2023 this year, Behavioral Safety and Efficacious Application of Applied Behavior Analysis to Reduce Human Suffering. Well, that that got my attention. I said, oh, I would love to read this, even though normally I'm not super interested in behavior-based safety, clearly, because I did not know what it was all about, besides the obvious of reducing injuries. So something that in behavior-based safety, this is a sub-discipline of organizational behavior analysis. So similar to applications in a clinical setting versus applications in a workplace, they have different ways of using foundational behavior analytic interventions that are the most effective for this specific setting. For example, something that they do is the no name, no blame process when they're recording behavioral safety. So they're going to use a binary process for taking data and observing if employees are engaging in whatever the targeted safe behaviors are. Good behaviors are going to be recorded as either engaging in safe behavior or not engaging in safe behavior, engaging in at-risk behavior because not safe is not a behavior. Can we give some examples of safety behavior, safety-related behaviors that you might see in behavior-based safety? Some examples that have been commonly researched and have been effective at reducing injuries and accidents in behavior-based safety include the wearing of appropriate gloves, the wearing of PPE, personal protective equipment, personal protective equipment. There's also, I need to fact check this, but I think there is some BBS research on in a medical setting of, um, yes. There's one study with the tools because apparently, I'm not sure if everyone knows this, but there's a need for OBM in hospitals. I think some people know that. But the number one reason people die in a hospital is because they have either objects or tools left inside of them or a medical error. Okay? That's not even what I was going to say. Go off. (laughs) Okay. So this is a huge issue. There was a study, I need to fact check it, but I know it's real because it's not in my head, of where they taught the proper picking up, placing, utilizing, and putting down of medical equipment during surgery because that reduced the number of times these very intelligent, smart people that are on under a lot of stress trying to do an operation, they forget and they just leave a sponge inside you. Oops, they leave a spiky tool inside you. My bad. On this same note of this passing procedure, 
what used to happen, and I know everyone has some form of knowledge of Grey's Anatomy. So think of Grey's Anatomy if you don't have experience in the sector. Trigger warning here, we're obviously talking about uh, things that could injure you in yes. a operational room. So if that's a something that affects you, pause or skip ahead like one minute. Thank you for saying that. Thank you. So on the same note here of, pa of loading, handling, moving these items, another thing that used to frequently happen in operation rooms is you would just pass the scalpel. So you'd have it in your hand and you'd pass it off to the next person. And what would happen is attendings, nurses, surgeons were getting cut open in the operating rooms Yikes. because someone would swing a scalpel and hit you. Yeah. So the new appropriate procedures for passing these surgical instruments is another great example of behavioral-based safety. You see it on every episode of Grey's Anatomy. What do we pass? The tray. The equipment goes on the tray and the tray gets moved. Instead of potentially nicking someone, you pass the tray because that's going to reduce the likelihood of injuries while operating. This makes me want to do a podcast episode about OBM and hospital research because that's just so cool. Reduce response effort, easiest solution. We're not cutting each other open. We're not leaving equipment in other people. That's immensely valuable for everyone in society. Thank you, OBM. I also love the hospitals that display graphical feedback for mm. how their hospital is doing. I'm like, I would love to see this data. Thank you for putting it on a bulletin board in the local area. Right, because you bet your bottom dollar. I'm going to look it up. Mm-hmm. Okay, so going back, I got a little lost in a rabbit hole. Sorry. Um, I stepped on a soapbox. <laughs> Mary loves OBM and hospitals. That is her, one of her main soapboxes. Yes, I care about it very much. I just think it's really impactful. And I think it's, I think it's real. I think it's amazing, similar to OBM in autism clinics, helping RBTs and BCBAs in leadership. There is nothing that makes me feel like I'm adding value and contributing to society more to where I am able to help and support not necessarily the client, but the person who is delivering the services and implementing what is necessary to help the client. There is yeah. nothing that makes me happier. And from the OBM research that I've read, in hospital settings, that is what they're doing. Helping and support the people who help and support people. I love it. Amazing. Okay, so going back to the Ludwig and Lasky article that came out very recently, talking about behavior-based safety to reduce human suffering, something that they talk about is when they're evaluating whether there are safe behaviors occurring or at-risk behaviors occurring, is they don't actually write down, mm, Mary didn't wear her gloves, strike. Or they don't write down, Jackie doesn't have her helmet on strike. They just record whether behaviors are safe or at risk. And the reason that they do this is because they don't necessarily care who is engaging in the behavior for this specific intervention. They're taking a ton of data. They're getting hundreds of data points across the entire organization because they want to make sure they have a systematic sample and not just isolated incidents of Mary never putting her gloves on. So they have the system called the no name, no blame. And I think that is a lot, not the same, but aligned with what we're talking about in terms of you don't have to punish employees. You can evaluate in a way that protects anonymity and makes individuals feel supported while still assessing whether there are safe or at-risk behaviors occurring and address those at-risk behaviors to save these individuals from potentially life-altering injuries in a way that's not calling people out. 
And I think that's amazing. I think that's a great way to utilize OBM. Part of that benefit too is it might promote a more ethical, maintained culture. If you don't have to worry about reporting someone and your name being attached to that report, you might be more likely to report that someone isn't engaging in wearing their safety goggles if you don't have to worry about potential backlash or retaliation from your colleague. Exactly. And there's something to be said of, and I believe there's research on this as well, I need to fact check, that the likelihood of you, and this makes sense too, the likelihood of, especially if you're buddy pals with your, if it was Jackie and I and we had our gloves on and Jackie didn't have her helmet on, I would say, I would mark down she's engaging and I'm just being honest, I would probably mark down that she's engaging in safe behaviors and I would say, Jackie, <clears throat> homegirl, put your helmet on. And then she would put her helmet on. What happens more commonly, I think, is that I would do that only when a supervisor is walking by. And then when the supervisor would go see you later, not see you for three days, Jackie would take the helmet off and I wouldn't say anything. I think that's what happens a lot of time because of the contingencies that are present. So by not recording names and not posting names, it eliminates the social punishment that could happen if me as Jackie's peer and colleague would have to call her out. I don't have to engage in that behavior, which therefore would make it more likely that I'm going to accurately track like, yo, Jackie's not engaging in unsafe and she's engaging in adverse behavior by not having her helmet on, but I'm not going to write down that it's Jackie. So it's totally okay. From personal experience, that is exactly what happens. So I used to work at a warehouse for a truck upfitting company where we were supposed to have our safety goggles on all day. And what would happen is people don't wear the safety goggles. Someone would they fog see, up. Yeah, they do fog up. It's awful, especially when you're working outside in Make hot better heat. goggles. Like, come um, on. So someone would see the supervisor starting to walk up. Mm-hmm. And then it would just spread like wildfire. Put on your goggles, put on your heart. And then as soon as the supervisor walked through the door, Everyone's got their goggles on, not because they've been wearing them all day, but because we almost had a phone tree to tell people, hey, make sure you're doing this. They're about to walk in. Exactly. In addition to not placing blame and just eliminating the need for that social punishment, which could potentially decrease the accurate reporting of at-risk behavior, establishing cross-functional communication loops or feedback loops within the organization is arguably the best, most effective way to maintain these types of systems and arguably not going to happen if people feel like they are going to be called out, especially by name and or engage and contact that punishment. Yeah, I would say uh, those feedback loops are the main thing that would make this work. Yeah, Because something Mary and I talked about when we were brainstorming how to discuss this is there is other research in OVM that says giving group feedback isn't going to work because the person you're delivering that feedback to doesn't necessarily know you're talking about them. Right. Which is 100% correct. So I'd say the main thing here, if we're doing that no name game, we have to ensure that feedback is going out when instances like this occur. Correct. And my limited, newly learned understanding of how this specific system works is the reason they don't have a need for calling out people and saying, Mary, you haven't been wearing your gloves for the past week. You need to put your gloves on is that they take data across the whole organization. It's not just Mary. It's actually 
80% of the population is not wearing their gloves. They find out the function behind the behavior. They address increasing in safe behaviors. And then that is part of the feedback loop that is present at all levels of the organization. So everybody is getting that information, but also it's done in a function-based way. Like I said, I might not have explained that 100% accurately, but I do think that's the difference. And Jackie, I'm glad you brought up that point because I don't want people to think that we're suggesting that providing corrective critical group feedback anonymously, just like blatantly saying, or generally broadly speaking, giving corrective feedback in a group, we know that that doesn't work. This is similar, but I don't believe it's the same. And that's why it's so effective. And they have data showing that these organizations have improved in safe behaviors and has maintained over years, which is really cool. And so I'm really glad you brought up that discrimination. I think a big part is that incorporation of data. You're not just saying, reminder, be sure to wear your goggles, but saying, hi, everyone. We saw upon data collection that 60% of you are not wearing your goggles. You're hitting that point that this is not just a one person. This isn't you. If there's enough occurrences that we're sending an email about this, we're probably hinting at you too. And they have, as part of the feedback loop, they have trainers that they're employees and they are trained as basically subject matter experts to be doing the observing and data collection. And best practice recommends based on this recent article, um, I don't have it here, but I'll list it in the citation, it's 2022. They talk about how the ratio of the trained observer, who's also the employee observing their peers and taking data is one to five. If we can just pop out of the research bubble really quick, If you're only observing four other people on a consistent basis, you're going to know who's doing safe behaviors and who's engaging in at-risk behaviors. So I think that kind of eliminates that need for people slipping through the cracks. But I think that's another reason why their system is so effective and they are able to establish those feedback loops because they have those trained employees. Yeah, it's definitely different if I were to get an email with like three other people on it saying I have to engage in this behavior compared to 200 other people. Having that smaller sample size definitely helps to elucidate that this is a behavior that I should likely be working on and I can't just push it aside that they must be talking about someone else if it's just me and a couple of other people. Cool. This is exciting. I've never, to be really honest, transparent, I've never been excited about safety research, even though I know it's really, really, really important. And um, talking about this makes me excited. Almost like similar to the hospital stuff. Like I get it now. I get it. It's cool. That's why I love OBM. So much of it is really just common sense. Jackie's not wrong. It's common sense, but like- Common sense ain't so common. It's really not like talking about the negative reinforcement. I operate a lot of my contingencies for doing work based on just the ability to get the task done and escape. And so I really am trying to work on going towards contacting more positive reinforcement. And the only way that I found to semi-effectively try to do that is to establish my personal values, make a dopamine hit list and do it in that way. And it is challenging. It's difficult. You can probably hear my dogs barking and I apologize for that. Okay. By me, you know, I got one here. I'm sure audience members have pets as well or uh, non-fur children who also will come and interrupt work from home so you're not going to hear a lick from me about it just some side giggles appreciate it appreciate it. hercules is the best boy he currently napping on the couch oh he's he said it's nap time on the note of our doggies how are you staying hydrated this week how are you taking (gasps) care of you 
I am taking care of myself by making the effort and scheduling enough time to go to a gluten-free, dairy-free local bakery in my area because it's so delicious. They're only open for a certain amount of time and all their items sell out really, really fast. But what I learned that I didn't know is half of the bakery is owned by one person. The other half is real food. And the food, when you make a purchase, like they have like pizza dough, they have salads, they have uh, cheesecake ice cream bars, gluten-free, dairy-free, amazing. When I make a purchase, that actually contributes to feeding a individual who is currently unhoused that does not have a home. And I did not realize that. And that just makes me want to go even more. Specifically, nobody will really care about this because they don't know where we live, which is totally fine. But I got a dairy-free, gluten-free, cream cheese, pumpkin hummus, I guess. Delicious. You would, would, right. I was like, "Mm, I'm skeptical. Most delicious thing ever. The way I stay hydrated this week, as I kind of touched on in my candy identifier for this week, is I had some friends over and we carved pumpkins. I, when carving pumpkins, like to get one that is big enough to fit on top of my head. So I got a really big pumpkin and I carved Jack Skellington's face onto it. And it does, in fact, fit on top of my head beautifully, which I don't know why that just brings me so much joy. But it's just so fun. And like, when else am I going to do something like that? So I'm going to dress up at some point and take some photos with a pumpkin head as the pumpkin queen. Um, Just to engage in the spooky season as we're wrapping up here. My father is also going to swing by this weekend. So I'll get to spend time with him, which is always hydrating to be around family, friends, and loved ones. And yeah, the spooky season, the pumpkins, my family. That's my hydration. We love to hear it. Incredible. And that wraps up this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. Remember to make waves, collect data, and as always, behave yourself.